0: Hi, this is Ben Lowell and this is Back to the Bible Canada. Today we continue Dr. Newfeld's series from the book of Revelation called From Creation to Creation. Today's message from Revelation 1-1 is entitled, Behind the Book. Now let's join Dr. Newfeld.
1: People have long been fascinated with the book of Revelation. You know, verses from the book are often quoted in movies that depict disasters and the end of all life. You know, think of words like Armageddon or apocalypse or the beast or the bottomless pit. I mean, the minute you think of words like that in a movie, you know, you're going to witness great special effects. But the book of Revelation is not what the movie makers make it to be. The book is a revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and about the glory of the Father and of the Son. It's about the eternal plans of God to make all things new. In my estimation, the book is one of the most hopeful tracts of literature that the human race has in its possession. It tells us that God is in control and that the Son puts into effect the eternal plans of the Father. There is so much to say that would rescue the book of Revelation from so-called prophecy specialists. Who have been using it to predict the end of the world with wrong predictions and fanciful theories for a long time now. Indeed, the book of Revelation is probably the most misunderstood book in the Bible that we have. Now, part of what helps us understand the book is to understand how we got the book of Revelation in the first place. Now, once we understand that, we begin to understand what it attempts to communicate to us, and the truth is that this is not a book about science fiction at all. This is a book deeply rooted in the visions of the Old Testament prophets. So let's understand how we got the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation begins with these words. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. And so we have the short answer to how we got the book of Revelation. God the Father revealed these words to God the Son, that is, to Jesus, who is the Christ or the Messiah. Jesus, in turn, revealed these words to an angel who was sent from Jesus himself to go to John. John, in turn, then, wrote down everything that he was both shown and what he witnessed. That's how the book came to us. But as it is with all short answers, there is a longer and more detailed answer that is both fascinating and helps us understand what is remarkable about this book. Let's start with the authorship of the book. In Revelation, he is simply called John. Now, I'm fully aware that most of us will assume that this John is none other than the Apostle John, the author of the Gospel of John and also of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, three small letters near the end of our Bible. And I'm going to say that's absolutely correct. But having said that, I wish to acknowledge that this has been challenged in more recent years. You know, often those who deny that the Apostle John wrote this book like to cite one reference from a bishop living in Alexandria in the 3rd century. His name was Dionysius, And he thought that it was unlikely that John the Apostle wrote the book, simply because the style of the book was different from the other writings of John. And he thought it was a stretch to think that the same man wrote them both. I mean, read the Gospel of John, and it's a very simple style. Compare that to Revelation, and it uses very complex images. And so today, modern liberal theologians often use Dionysius' doubts about the authorship of Revelation, and also expand on Dionysius' arguments to suggest that the book itself was written by another John, perhaps a man named John the Elder. Perhaps, they say, he was known in the early church, but that his identity has been lost over the intervening centuries but they say it's unlikely that it came from the pen of the apostle. To that, I would respond in three ways. First, even though it is true that Dionysius denies that John the apostle wrote the book, but he is almost the only early Christian who did. There is almost unanimous support among early Christian leaders on this matter. So, for instance, Justin Martyr, who lived from 110 to 165, was one of the most well-known early Christians and considered by most as one of the outstanding early apologists that is a defender of the faith or someone who develops a reasonable intellectual defense for the Christian faith. In his very famous Dialogue with Trifo, Trifo was a Jew who opposed the Christian faith. In Justin Martyr's Arguments with Trifo, he quotes from Revelation 20, and then he adds that this was written by John, one of the apostles of Christ. You know, other early Christians who affirmed that John the Apostle wrote Revelation are Arrhenius, Tertullian, Clement of Alexandria, Ignatius, Origen, and Hippolytus, and many more significant Christian leaders who all had access to the actual details of the writing of the book and were aware of those who testified to its authenticity that this was written by none other than the Apostle John. Indeed, all the early church fathers were unanimous without exception that this was the work of the Apostle John. And so it was not until some time later that Dionysius, in the third century, questions this, and it turns out he does so not on historical evidence, but on philosophical grounds. Dionysius, it turns out, had a problem with the idea of the millennium. He thought it was impossible that Christ would reign on the earth for a thousand years before the end would come. And so for him, questioning that this book was apostolic was a convenient tool. It undercut the book's authority. And until the third century, let me say it again, no one ever doubted who it was that wrote this book. Ah, but what of the difference in writing styles? Remember, I said that I had three responses to those who say that the book was not written by the Apostle John. My first response is that early Christian leaders were unanimous that John the Apostle wrote this book. Here now is my second response, which deals with the differences in writing styles between the book of Revelation and the Gospel of John. Now, you and I should be aware that a great deal of scholarly work has been done identifying key grammatical differences between the two works. But on the other hand, a number of other scholars have also pointed out a number of similarities between the two works. But from my limited vantage point, most of this discussion is really not necessary. Let's just admit that the two books read very differently. But should this fact concern us? Well, I think not, so why? Let me give an example. If you've ever read C.S. Lewis's work entitled The Four Loves, you'll find a detailed philosophical discussion of the way in which four different Greek words for love should be understood and what light that sheds on our understanding of love today. Contrast that work with Lewis's work The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and there we find a children's story, and the language is very simple. Indeed, using the same critique we find among many liberal scholars, they would have to argue that the two works, The Four Loves and The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, could not have been written by the same person, but of course we know that they were. So what's my point? My point is that there are numerous authors throughout history that have written very different works using very different styles of writing. Nothing of the differences in style should alarm us. Indeed, depending on what he or she wants to communicate, many a gifted author has done what liberals assume that John could not have done. And and of course, all that argument is rubbish. There is no reason for believing that the apostle could not have written both the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. A third reason for holding that the apostle John wrote this book is because of the kind of literature that was allowed into our New Testament. All New Testament books were either written by apostles or by prophets that were directly supervised by the apostles. Luke, for instance, was not an apostle, but he was supervised and mentored by the apostle Paul. Mark, for instance, was not an apostle, but he was supervised by and mentored by the apostle Peter. The question of authorship was the key question in determining why certain New Testament books were allowed in the New Testament and others weren't. Books were not admitted into the New Testament as a popularity contest or by the idea that people liked their content or agreed with them. Books were either admitted into the New Testament or excluded from the New Testament upon the very grounds of who actually wrote them. Was this written by an approved spokesman of God or was it not? And in the case of the book of Revelation, well, the evidence is in. This came from the hand of the very trusted man and the man who was personally chosen by Jesus himself in his earthly ministry. This came from the hand of the Apostle John.
0: June is one of the most significant months of the year financially for the ministries of Back the Bible Canada. Like every family, individual, and organization across the country, we've had to adjust our expenses this past year, but despite the challenges and because of your consistent support, we continue to be committed to making all of our Bible teaching programming and resources available without interruption. To help maintain this commitment, a group of generous ministry supporters who share our heart for Bible teaching have offered to double your gifts this month The June ministry target for our fiscal year end is $325,000. Would you help to provide a financial gift towards that goal? Remember, every dollar you give will be matched up to $75,000, so your gift has doubled the impact. To make your fiscal year end gift today, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
1: established that the book of Revelation was from the pen of the Apostle John. Let's deal with when the book was written. I turn again to one of the early Christian leaders, and by the way, I mean those leaders of the church after the apostolic era, and in this case, I'm speaking of a man who is named Irenaeus. Remember, he's one of the early Christians who affirmed that it was the Apostle John who wrote this book. I'm reading a direct quote from Irenaeus. He said, John received the revelation almost in our own time toward the end of the reign of Domitian. Now that's interesting because Irenaeus had been mentored and discipled by a man named Polycarp who was the bishop of Smyrna and who in old age was martyred in that very city. Now this Polycarp had been mentored and discipled, yep, you guessed it, by no one else than the apostle John himself. And so, Irenaeus is only one step away from John himself. And it was Irenaeus who gives us a date for the writing of the book. He claims the book was written during the end of the reign of Domitian. Now, we know Domitian's reign as emperor of Rome ended in the year A.D. 96, and so most faithful Bible teachers date the book of Revelation sometime in the mid-A.D. 90s. Often a date of 95 will often be attached to this book. Now, why have I spent so much time on this matter? I'm trying to help us understand how we got the book of Revelation. And so let me take you back to the day in which Jesus was crucified. As Jesus is dying on the cross, John himself records Jesus saying something directly to him. I'm reading John 19:26 to 27. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. We notice how often John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. See, there is no doubt that among the 12 disciples chosen by Jesus, John was the youngest, probably by far. And it would seem that Jesus, in his concern for John, took him under his wing and spent a great deal of time with him and watched over him, hence the title, The One Whom Jesus Loved. Now, Jesus on the cross requested that John be charged with the care of Mary, Christ's own mother. We know from reliable sources that that's precisely what John did as long as Mary was alive. And again, according to very reliable sources, including Irenaeus, John settled in Ephesus where he led the church there, and it was from there that he penned the gospel of John. It was there under his care that Mary, the mother of our Lord, died and was buried. And it was there in Ephesus, while involved in ministry, long after Mary would have died, that the policies against the Christians were becoming more hostile. The Roman authorities were increasingly aware of the growing Christian movement and were directing policies designed to discourage Christianity from growing. The Roman Emperor Domitian, through events that are not clear today, had John banished to the island of Patmos, which is a small island on the Mediterranean Sea, not far from his home in Ephesus. Patmos was one of a number of Roman penal colonies that were located in the Mediterranean. So what was Patmos like? Well, for one, it was a sterile island with almost no plants, hot and dry, almost no shelter, only about 45 kilometers in circumference. But it had caves, and on islands such as this, prisoners were often required to work in mines. It's thought that John was not mistreated on the island, for he was at this time an old man and and was known for his very loving demeanor. Nonetheless, because of his leadership in the church, he's exiled to this penal colony where his contact with the growing churches was then effectively stopped. But John must have been concerned. The storm clouds of persecution were rising, and his home church in Ephesus was, was soon to experience the reality of the might of imperial Rome rising up to destroy this church. And not just his own church, but the churches in that region, those close by, in Smyrna, where Polycarp was the pastor, and in Pergamum, where another one of John's disciples, a man named Hieromartyr Antipas, was the pastor, in Thyatira, in Sardis, in Philadelphia, and in Laodicea. All of these churches in which John had a significant influence All of them were now being robbed of his leadership. Clearly, John needed to get a note to them. He needed to instruct them, to encourage them, to teach them how to stand fast with the ominous clouds of persecution beginning to rise against them. See, I can imagine John in exile on the barren hills of a hot little island, unable to get news from home and unable to communicate news to them— but earnestly in prayer for his home church and for the others, as any faithful Christian pastor would do. Here's a picture of a pastor in prayer. And then on one Sunday, as he's worshiping, and, and suddenly and unexpectedly, Jesus himself came to John. Remember, during the earthly ministry, this was the one whom Jesus especially loved and took care of and watched over. And it turns out, to the old man's amazement, Jesus was still watching over him and taking care of him, but more, he was also taking care of the the very churches that John was so concerned over. I don't think it's possible to understand the book of Revelation without doing a thorough study of the seven churches that this book is addressed to. Now, did I just surprise you? Some of us might say it's not possible to understand revelation without knowing at what time the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse are going to ride or, or when the seven seals are about to be broken or, or something like that. You know, Some of us think that until the 20th and then the 21st century, we were never in a place to understand what revelation was referring to until you got electronic banking and and global communication and nuclear weapons and Israel becoming a, a nation again, and on and on go our speculations about this book. But in truth, just like the letters of Paul, Revelation is addressed to a church, or should I say, to seven specific churches, churches that John oversaw, until we understand their local situation and what they were facing and what their struggles were. Well, we'd miss what it is that Jesus was communicating to them. You see, the seven churches being addressed, each would have been called to hear the words of this book and apply the entire book directly to their local situation. Let's start with Ephesus. In Acts 20, Paul had warned them that among the elders of that church, yes, from the elders of Ephesus, false teachers would arise, and that's exactly what happened. We know some of their names. One was named Hymenaeus, and the other, Alexander. And the apostle Paul had excommunicated these two men for having made a shipwreck of the faith of some. We know that Paul wrote 1 Timothy after he sent Timothy to Ephesus. Timothy's job is to command certain leaders to stop teaching false doctrines. This would have been before John would have arrived there. But in Revelation 2, Ephesus has turned the corner and are holding to the truth with doctrinal vigilance. Jesus commends them by telling them how he applauds them now, for they are not able to bear with false teachers. But this doctrinal vigilance has led the way to a new problem. They've lost their first love. They've they've lost their passion for Jesus himself. And each of the seven churches are given a unique message by Jesus. Can you imagine John on Patmos knowing each one of these churches and and being in deep prayer for them? Storm clouds of persecution are rising, and some of the churches were proving themselves completely unready to face what was lying before them. Some of them might crumble the, the minute that persecution arose simply because they were so intimidated by the outside world and they were so unable to see the glory of Christ. And then Jesus came to John on the island, in the midst of his concern and in all his glory. and He delivers a letter for each one of the churches in question and more, gives them a tract, not just for them, but for the churches of all days. And in this tract, he paints a picture of the grand spiritual warfare that we all have and how this warfare is coming to an end with the second coming of Jesus Christ. And somehow, this this book of Revelation was smuggled off the island of Patmos and, and then read to all of the seven churches, and it's being read today by us. And that's how we got it. And that's what the book means. For science fiction fans, sorry to disappoint you, but for those interested in the biblical message for the church today, what a joy to have this amazing letter and to allow it to inform us what God is up to today.
0: John, there's so much in the book of Revelation relative to looking forward, but there's got to be so much for us today as well.
1: Yeah, and that's really what I'm wanting to emphasize as I continue to introduce the book. I'm going to say that A great deal of revelation is to be applied directly to our situation as we're facing the opposition of a hostile culture. But of course, the book tells of a time in the distant future when Christ, or maybe even the near future today, when Christ will come again. And so it holds both of those things, and we need to hold both of them at the same time. Uh, Strength for today, understanding of the spiritual warfare we're facing, and then applying that to the end of days.
0: Great job. Thanks so much and return again for Back to the Bible Canada, leading you forward in your walk with Jesus every day. You may think that estate planning is only for the wealthy but decisions about your home, family, your retirement, or even how you'd like to see your money used for ministry and for the kingdom. Well, that's important. Back to the Bible Canada has partnered with Advisors with Purpose to help you start and discuss those important decisions. Their trained estate specialists are available to meet you by phone and provide you with the information to make the best decisions possible for you and your family. As a result of our partnership, Advisors with Purpose has made their services free and confidential to you alone, leaving you free from any obligation. It's never too early to plan for your future, so call them today. To speak to an estate specialist today, call 1-866-336-3315. That's 1-866-336-3315 or visit advisorswithpurpose.ca for your free and confidential consult.